Hey friends, Ed Williams here. As you know, I'm absolutely passionate about the business of aesthetic medicine as well. It's mentoring those who are serious to get to the next level in business and in life. In my podcast series, I share so many of the lessons and things I've learned as an entrepreneur, small business owner, physician, surgeon. Every mistake I've made, and I've written a book called The White Coat Entrepreneur, where I tell all about anything that's essentially relevant to any professional, not just surgeons who are attempting to be more successful in business and in their career. Today, my topic is going to be investing for the surgeon, physician, professional, and how to acquire wealth over time in the most effective way. And I'm certainly not an investor, but I've made my share of mistakes and I've learned an awful lot. Uh, Hopefully I can share you uh, from making, I can spare you from making some of those mistakes. Uh, Check out my website, dredwinwilliams.com. On that, I have uh, all the podcast titles. And next month, I'm going to be interviewed by Catherine Maley, a marketing expert in our area. And she's she's going to interview me about how we grew the practice and how do you add physicians and start to build in succession planning? So I hope you uh, listen to that. And I hope you enjoy this podcast on how to invest in save for the surgeon, physician, and acquiring wealth, which really was what it comes down to over time. Hey, everyone. Thanks for uh, listening to my podcast. And today I'm going to talk about investing for the professionals, if really either physicians or any other professionals for that matter, because we all kind of fall into the same trap, don't we? So I, I'm not one to be a big and endorse a lot of books, but I, I am going to tell you one of the best books you can read is called The Millionaire Next Door. If you haven't read it, uh, read it again. I read it again last summer. And what you find out is you read from this book. First of all, everything that was written in this book many years ago is still true and is still relevant today. I think it was written about 30, 25, 30 years ago. And I don't want to waste too much time talking about the, the, the book. And and I'm not like a, you know, a, philo- a hot, hot psychology philosophy kind of guy. I go by data numbers. And, and uh, in this book, uh, there's the numbers to back up all the conclusions the authors came to. But the reality is that um, it's not how much you make. And it, it, it really comes down to how you manage your finances through life. And I don't know why that's so surprising. Um, and, you know, up to $80,000, maybe $100,000 a year, people become happier. But beyond that, having more money doesn't necessarily make you happy, but it gives you a lot of security. And I always tell my young uh, colleagues that I mentor, if you don't become a student of your own finances and become a student of business, Nobody will. There are a ton of people out there looking to take advantage of you. And when you look at how hard you work to get through medical school, law school, or any other professional degree to that extent with all the delayed ratification, you owe it to, you owe it to yourself. So, you know, why is the millionaire the most common person to be the millionaire next door? That has, in other words, the surprising amount of wealth you never knew someone had was are small business people. And the reason why small business people are the largest part of the category is is if they're taking risk and they're growing a business, they don't know what tomorrow is like. I mean, I've seen three recessions in my time, but the average small business owner doesn't know if next year is going to be a great year, an okay year, a lousy year. And so they they typically live well within your means. And this is really the bottom line of the whole book. So 
you know, why start early? And, and why not just say, listen, why don't I get, get until I'm done with medical school and all my training to uh, even start thinking about it? Well, the reason why is that if you do it right, it becomes a habit. It becomes part of your culture, um, your family culture, if you will, living well within your means. And just from a savings point of view, the sooner you start to save, the more accumulation of wealth, because that's really what it comes down to is acquisition of wealth over time to give you the freedom to do what you want and retire whenever you want, right? So if you think of, for example, let's talk about putting $500 a week or excuse me, a month away, which sounds like a lot when you're in your 20s, right? But I asked, you know, a couple 30 year olds, do you think you could put, if you really worked hard, put 30, you know, put uh, $500 a month away, and you figured just let's say a 2.5% 2, 2. return. At the end of when you're 65, that's $328, 28000 that is, versus if you did it starting just 10 years later, and 10 years later, it's only $205. So it's almost, you know, another 60, 70% more just by starting 10 years sooner. And the reason, so now imagine doing this with larger amounts of money as you get older. And, and I, the big analogy that was given to me many, many years ago is it's like the snowball going down the hill and a snowman. You know, the snowball is really small in the beginning. It's little. You just make it with your, you know, it kind of, it's a snowball that you would throw at someone. But each turn as you get down the hill starts to get massive once you've got a big ball. And it really is the same thing with, you know, with investing. So I'm certainly not... Um, uh, a, a schooled advisor, but I've learned an awful lot from the School of Hard Knocks, and I've also had my degree of success over time. So, you know, why do physicians um, and surgeons in particular, I think, uh, don't, don't do well with this whole thing? Well, first of all, I think professionals um, are set up for failure because they're accustomed to borrowing, and it's acceptable to borrow for your education. So you kind of get used to this. The second reason is we're, you know, we, we are so used to, quote, delayed ratification that we kind of build up a little bit of entitlement so that when we finally get to a point where we are making a living, we, we don't want to go without. We don't want to suffer anymore, I guess. The third reason I think physicians are set up poorly is that they're used to somewhat of a guaranteed income. So, you know, if you know you're going to make the same amount of money that you made last year plus 5%, um, you're more likely to, to lean into or to live into that income, right, versus planning for savings and planning to put, you know, put away. Um, and because we have this degree of security, it encourages the wrong behavior. It, it, it encourages the behavior of living into... Uh, living into your income and not having a ton left over, you know. So, you know, why should we minimize our debt as physicians, even when we're going through our residency? You know, I remember when one of my colleagues, one of my co-residents, went out and bought a brand new thousand dollar bicycle, and he, you know, borrowed it and put it on it, you know, put it on his credit card. And I know we, you know, we didn't make that kind of money. And I, why shouldn't he do that? Right? He's gonna, he's gonna make a good living someday. Well. Because it, it develops a wrong behavior, uh, one of living into what you got and living in and, and getting accustomed to debt. So 
Why should we minimize that? One, it's part of a, it becomes a healthy culture, but also discipline is freedom. And when you have money and you have wealth and you have and you have assets put aside, as time goes by, you have the opportunity. You're, you're in a better position to take risk. Let me give you an example. About 15 years ago, a buddy of mine was running a publicly traded company. I decided, you know what? I met all the senior people on his team, and I thought I'm going to put, I'm going to invest in this company. I mean, I'm really at that point. I become a student of business, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, you know what? I believe in these people. I, I remember pushing the send button, click, to buy all, a bunch of stock. And it was a big hunk of money for me at the time. Well, about 18, 19 months later, once we were past, past capital gains threshold, he sold the company and I doubled my, my, doubled my money. And, um, you know, that would not have happened if I didn't have cash sitting aside from a previous life when maybe I was... Uh, a little more, you know, frugal, uh, should you say. So it is worth, the other reason, so I call that discipline is freedom and the ability to take risk. So that's one reason why. Two is life insurance. Life insurance as you get older gets more and more expensive. If you are, have enough that your family, even those who may be going to college, you know there's enough there to take care of your family by the time you're age 50, 55, you don't have to buy life insurance any longer if you don't want, and especially like a term policy. Same thing with disability. I had a bad accident in 2006. I got through the whole thing, realized that you know my life, my disability wasn't really all that great. I mean, I had enough to carry me, but I had enough put away at that point that I could kind of self-fund my, and you know, just the peace of mind of knowing and not having that another annual experience as you're in your higher income years, is, uh, is worth something. And finally, as I mentioned, you know, minimizing debt and saving and becoming that habit, you have this snowball effect where your net worth starts to grow, and we're going to talk about this at the end, when your net is, worth is growing at a greater rate than your income, okay, you don't need to work. Um, and that's the snowball effect. And let me tell you, there's nothing better than giving you peace of mind to just, just enjoy working because you want to work. So, you know, how much should we put away? How much should we save? Now, again, it's different for physicians because when you're going through medical school and you're going through your residency, you can't really save anything, right? But typically, as a general rule of thumb, if you have an average job and you go an average lifetime, if you save 15 to 20% of what you make, after tax, you live on 50% of it and you spend discretionary spending for 20-30%, you should have no problem. And I, I believe in giving giving 10% away if you can do that. Um, but if you live, if you put away 15% and you stay in that same income and live within your means, you will have no problem saving enough to retire. And when I say retire, I'm not talking about cut back on your your living expenses or start to move into a little duplex or something. I'm talking about continuing to live the same life that you've had and not change your lifestyle. Because to me, that's not what I want to do. I mean, it didn't work that hard to just cut back. Okay, so a couple things to just, you know, think about as general concepts when you're saving. One, I talk to a lot of our younger colleagues. They say, oh, I'm doing fine. I'm doing just fine. And I, I maximize my retirement every year. And as long as I know I'm maximizing my, my retirement, I'm in good shape. Myth number one is that is not enough. Okay. Because if you maximize your retirement, you'll get, you got a million, a couple million bucks, but try living on that. 
You know, try living on that. And think about this for a second. So how much do you need to live on? Okay, so the, the conventional thinking and teaching has always been 4% of what you put away. So let's say, okay, if you can live on $200,000 a year, okay, and that means, you know, all in lifestyle, um, after tax, you need to have 5 million, at least 5 million put away. If you want to live on 400,000 um, and you're traveling, because that's what a lot of physicians do toward the end, you need to have at least 10 million uh, put away. So what I, the epiphany I had about 15, 20 years ago was this. It doesn't matter what I have in my retirement account, okay? I need to do something substantially more. Because here's the problem with retirement, too. When you take it out, it gets taxed. When you put money away and it's growing, oh, you got to pay capital gains when it goes up. But the reality, that's only when you sell. But the reality is, that is your money after tax. So that's myth number one, is saving in your retirement is sufficient. Number two, get the biggest home you can. You know, your home, despite what you want to believe, is not a great investment. That's against conventional wisdom. People always tell you, oh, get the biggest home you can afford. Now, home, to me, is my guilty pleasure. I don't care. I've worked really hard. I have a beautiful home. And that, to me, means more than having, you know, fancy watches and fancy shoes and all that other stuff. Because to me, home is where we spend our time as a family. So a couple of things to keep in mind um, that, you know, the maintenance, and again, this is all right in the millionaire next door, your home is not a great investment. There are other there are other places that are much, much, much better as investments. You know why? Because the average home takes about 1% per month to maintain. Taxes, uh, lawn service, um, you name it. Uh, and, and just trust me on that. So that means on a million dollar home, you're spending about $9,000 a month to maintain. And I, I have to tell you, I think one of the reasons a lot of doctors go out and buy a big home as soon as they can afford it is, is they just kind of feel like there's expectations. You know, I, I got I'm in, I, I got expectations. My family expects me to have a big home. I'm a doctor now, or I'm an attorney now. And really, the keeping up with the Jones is, is a very, very costly, costly behavior, and not something um, worth chasing. Same thing with country clubs. You know, if you love to golf and you love people, and but joining a country club because you're going to get, you know, you're going to get attract better clientele is not a good investment. So again, if you love if golf is your guilty pleasure and you love doing it, do it, but don't join a club or something along those lines. So what do I mean by a guilty pleasure? Now, here's the thing. If you're working really, really hard and you're making, you know, substantial income, um, you know, you don't want to be, you don't want to like not enjoy what you've worked for, right? I mean, you do want to be able to enjoy the fruits of your hard labor. So you pick a guilty pleasure. Maybe it's cars. Maybe gar cars are, I personally think that cars are a young woman's or a young man's game, you know. To me, you know, I've, I believe me, I've got my guilty pleasures. Uh, you know, I, uh, um, I'm a, a, pr a private pilot and I fly planes, so they're very expensive. But I didn't start doing that until I could afford them. I didn't start doing that until I could throw that money away money away quite frankly but um you know say you're into horses say you're into your home to me my home was important maybe splurged a little bit on that my son-in-law and daughter both physicians um they're very young in their career their guilty pleasures travel so they live a very modest lifestyle but my point is this 
don't not have a guilty pleasure that, that you reward yourself for working hard, but your whole life can't be a guilty pleasure. What you, and this is right in The Millionaire Next Door, you know, the the um, the uh, prodigious accumulators of wealth and then there's those who spend. And those who are um, spend and show their wealth by what they have have a really hard time accumulating wealth. So you don't want to be someone who has all kinds of guilty pleasures and you got to have the best of this and got to have the best of that. Um, so let's let's talk about, you know, investing in strategy and saving. You know, forced saving is so, forcing yourself to save is critical. And, you know, I actually talked to a buddy of mine once and I talked to him about, you know, saving. And he said, well, I always make sure I pay my self-worth first. And I do too, but we have different philosophies. His paying himself first is going out and buying a nice watch. Me paying myself first is before you pay any bills. You determine on a budget point how much you want to put away that year. And you put that money away before you pay your bills. And that forces you to live within your means with what you have left over. That's what I call paying yourself. Because that is what is going to allow you um, down the road to have have significant wealth. No one plans to fail, but a lot of people fail to plan. And if you have a plan and you make a budget, and it's, I don't need to really get into all the numbers, but the reality is, even if it's 200 bucks a month, even if it's 100 bucks a month, as you, you know, when you're younger, but having the discipline to save every single month is, is absolutely critical. How much? I, I mentioned earlier, if you have a stable job that grows over time, people say if you can, you know, put 15 to 20% away, um, you should, and live within your means, you will not have to change your lifestyle. Now, naturally, for, you know, someone who's a, a higher-end paid surgeon, uh, facial plastic surgeon or something, in your, your early years, you know, 15, 20%. But, you, you know, when you start making a really good living, why not just sock a bunch away? Do you really need to just spend that all? Um, and I say that because I see so many of our younger colleagues, actually a lot of colleagues of me, mine come up to me at the age of 65 and want to talk about retirement, but they haven't done anything because they can't afford to, because they've continued, they've had such a, a lavish lifestyle that they have to continue to work. And that to me is like, that, that's awful, awful. So first step, you know, and this is just basic one. I'm certainly, again, I'm not a professional investor. I've learned by the school of hard knocks and doximity has a lot of really good information for helping physicians on investment. But first thing you should do, obviously, get rid of, you know, get rid of your consumer debt. Pay that off. I know that's common sense 101, but I can't believe the number of people that carry balances on their credit cards, even physicians who should know better. Number two, medical school debt. You know, I, based on the policies, you can actually, with school debt, pay the minimum amount for 10 years and then it gets forgiven. Um, and I know the biggest offenders to this in our country, since this has been put in place uh, with the Obama administration, are physicians. I, quite frankly, think that's lame. If you borrowed money to go through medical school, you know, darn it, pay it off. Don't expect a society, society to pick that up. And, you know, I do I do get it that the institutions charge physicians a lot of money, 6 7 8%, which is I think is egregious. But it doesn't give you, us, the uh, justify letting someone pick up that debt at the end of 10 years. You, you know, you're in the ability to earn substantially more than most people in this country. You owe it to the country to pay off your debt. So... Let's talk about an strategy, investment strategy. You, you know, 
there are some basics and rules of thumb that I learned early on. And, and here's one of the most important is just widely diversify, diversify, diversify in as much as possible. Now, for some people, they don't have the stomach for real estate, so stay the heck out of it, you know. But there are all kinds of vehicles and you can use, whether you use a certified financial planner, whether you do it yourself, you know, there's stocks, there's bonds, there's real estate, there's other. But why, why? I mean, and, and even within, you know, stocks, there's international stocks, there's, uh, you know, there's U.S. stocks, there's large cap, small cap. Why do you spread out, diversify as much as, as possible? And that's because you spread out the risk. So, you know, for example, small cap, small companies are, are growing like crazy. Large cap, like GE, is not. Um, then, you know, you're kind of, you're taking it, you're spreading out the risk, you're spreading out, and you're also spreading out the opportunity. And I don't want to get into real strategy with you because there are uh, professionals that can help you, including artificial intelligence models, which I'll tell you in a little bit. Um, I'll give you an example of why it's important to spread out. So 2000, uh, 1997, I entered into a contract to build a building, a professional building we are in. It's 21,000 square feet. And at the time, I, I built it and I financed it like 90%, which I lost a lot of sleep for six months. But, but I knew I had a revenue stream of my practice. I lived conservatively and I knew I could carry the building. Okay, So I had the building. We get into 2000, 1999, 2000. And you know, we had more equity because the building value is going up. And um, I've got my advisors tell me, well, I would, if I were you, I would take out more of a loan on the building and put that in the stock market. And, you know, I kind of, it just didn't sit well with me. Why, you know, well, yeah, what if the market goes down, you know? And uh, is that really a good thing to do? And I just, I'm a conservative guy. I don't like carrying debt, even though I did for this building because I believed in, you know, one of the things I read early on with American Express, if you have your own business and you believe in yourself, invest there. That's the best place you can invest is in yourself, in your own business. So, and I did that with the building. Well, guess what happened to 2001, right? The stock market bubble, the bottom fell out, stock market dumped. And thank God I didn't pull that money out of my building and put it in the stock market. And that's why people diversify, you know, a small cap versus large cap. Larger companies are harder to grow, uh, but are less volatile than small cap. There's advantages and disadvantages, international versus U.S. stock. So here's the bottom, bottom, bottom line, okay? Don't become a day trader. Don't think you're smarter than Wall Street. There's a book that was written in the 80s. It was that it was called a wa random walk down um, Wall Street. And it basically poked, it, uh, it uh, picked, it, it, I think they basically took a monkey and had them throw darts and try to pick stocks. And the bottom line is the monkey didn't do any better or any worse than the best people on Wall Street to pick stocks. So, you know, if you think you can beat the market, it's not happening. And every time one of these companies, you know, one of these uh, uh, investment uh, companies comes up with someone they think is going to be their new, you know, hero, and they've got a, they've been picking, beating the average for three, four years, guess what? Bam, five years, the bottom falls out or something. But no one has ever historically been able to pick the stock, predict the stock market consistently year after year after year. And that is an absolute truth. And that is why it is so important to diversify. You know, why do people have money in the stock market? And well, because historically, here's the big reason why. Is, do you know, here's another really, 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 really important fact. Most people who have money in the stock market didn't make it in the market. 
Most people who have it in the market made it in some business, some form or another, whether it's small business, sold a company, um, saved it, made it based on distributions. But why do we people put it in the market? Because it's, it's I don't want to say it's safe, but it's a place you can continue to park larger and larger amounts and diversify and have some degree of di- stability, but also to have some degree of liquidity. If you need to take it out, it's regulated by the SEC, which means the SEC puts these companies under a microscope and makes sure, and, 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 you know, I mean, they can go to jail. Unfortunately, some of them do because they bend the rules. But unlike a small company, you see, they are held to the uh, standards of the SEC because it's, quote, public mo- money. It's not, it's almost like, you know, municipal, municipal money. It's public money. So if a CFO or a CEO is stealing from the company, you know, they can go to jail. Um, so that's kind of why people put money in the stock market because, because where else are you going to put it? You know, I mean, real estate takes your time, you know, and if you're like into real estate and into that sort of thing, that's great. I happen to love real estate, but that's the only reason people really put money in the stock market because it's a place to park it. It's regulated by the SEC. And when you go back 50, 70, 80 years, historically, you get a 70 to 80% re- or seven to 8% percent return year after year after year. And that is really why this people put money in the stock market and why I put a lot of, you know, money in the stock market. Now, there's a, a little bit of a challenge with that if you try, you know, there's that I just need to mention that's different about physicians and high income earners. If you put it in a fund, so many of these funds, say you put 50,000, 100,000, 2,000 into a fund. The, the problem with funds is there's, you got to really know their investment strategy a little bit because some of them are so concerned about, quote, posting a high return that they may have a great winner on a company that's growing and growing. And rather than hang on until it stabilizes or hang on until that company gets sold a year and a half, two years later, um, they cash to get the money off the table to post the return. Now, why is that important? Well, for them, it's important because they they have they're you know they're they're being scrutinized by the market. How well are they returning for investors? But the reason that might work to your detriment is if the company if things if you buy an asset today stock and you sell it in a year and it goes up a hundred thousand, you're now being paid you're paying ordinary income tax. So the strategy of the different fund or the investor who person who's investing for you, they need to understand your income bracket. And so things that are quote more growth oriented are better to invest in than things that are that are basically um, you know that that uh, that are not you know more income and they're looking to sell and just post returns. So it's important whoever's working with you understands your income strategy and also um, um, you know, understands your income strategy, but also understands what your goals are in your in your percentage tax bracket. Now, if you happen to be someone who wants to, I don't want to say gamble, but speculate or play with a little bit of your money, do that, but do it with a very small percentage of your money, 5% or less. I don't waste my time. I don't waste my time because there, no one has historically beat the market. Now, any physician I know who is often on the phone with their stock broker never does better than anyone else. And quite frankly, in my opinion, it's basically nothing more than legalized gambling. So, you know, what do you, you know, what do you give up with stocks? Well, you remember I said earlier, if you believe in yourself and you believe in a small business, there's nothing better that you can do than invest in your own company because any decent small company is going to put about a 15% or a 20% return, maybe 10% return to the bottom line. 
on a 20% return on investment, if that company is worth a million and you're getting $200,000 in profit each year, where are you going to get a 20% return? Okay? You can, but there's a lot more work and a lot more risk owning your own small business, and that's why people will, rather than getting a five times, you know, five to one or a 20% return, people will put money in the stock market at a price per earnings. They'll pay 13 times to 15 times, which only gives a 78% return versus paying five times for a small company. But again, it's a place you can park quite a bit about, quite a bit of money in the market. Now, what about, you know, managed accounts and, and all that sort of thing? Well, the problem with managed accounts is you really have to understand what are the fees that are being charged. There's actually large managed accounts that actually put things in mutual funds. So now you're getting two layers of fees. You're getting a fee to manage the account and you're getting a fee from the mutual fund. Um, and let me give you an example why this, the fees are really where you, what you need to look into. And, and I remember I was on a treadmill once and I heard Warren Buffett, someone said, if you had, I'm going to come back to this, if you had money to invest and save and you were young, where would you put it? And the first thing came right out of his head was an index fund. You know, he said, if I had $2,500, I'd put it in an index fund. And the reason why the management, or because the management fees are razor, you know, razor, razor thin. And there was a guy, John Bogle, who's now dead. He was, uh, he was uh, from Bryn Mawr. Uh, in Pennsylvania, he started the Vanguard funds. And um, what he did was he pulled large amounts of people's money together under one investment philosophy to keep the fees very, very low. And, you know, and, and I think they, in the index, the index, index fund, Vanguard index fund 500, the fees are like less than one quarter of a percent or something like that. Why is that so important? Because, because one, think of a hundred thousand dollars at a 4% return over 20 years. Okay. You put a hundred away, 4% return over 20 years with a quarter percent management fee. At the end of it, you have $210,000. At a 1% management fee, which is not unheard of, and actually 1 and 2 plus percent, but at a 1% fee, that 210000 is only 180. Imagine doing that with your whole, whole portfolio, the difference that it makes in the management fee. So management fees are absolutely um, critical. So the problem with, you know, you say, well, then why don't I put all of my money in index funds? Again, back to the same thing. Physicians are high, high income earners, right? So, you know, um, in that index fund, there may be things that are sold that probably should have been written out for capital gains. And that's why you might, once you get to a certain critical mass, you know, you have enough savings, you have enough invested in the market, start to work with a professional uh, professional that takes a, a management fee. Now, I work, and I'm not endorsing in any way here, you know, Wilmington Trust, but I work with Wilmington Trust, and they take about three quarters of 1%, which to me is a heck of a lot more than 40 basis points or 0.4 percent of a hundred thousand but with that I got I get a lot of family planning I got a lot a lot of legal guidance uh, estate planning all this other stuff that I get podcasts that are relevant for for what I have going on but you you get do get to a point where your your what you have is substantial enough it's worth giving up three quarters of a point or so versus just kind of a one size fits all stress advisement or investment strategy. So in the beginning, you cannot go wrong with index funds and disciplined savings and putting money away. And this is where the biggest failure isn't how you invest it. 
the biggest failure is that most of us don't seem to put it away until it's uh, it's till it's too late. Um, so yeah, as you get to a certain point with your in your career down the road, um, now I got to tell you, there's something interesting out there right now. There's a company was started in 2008, and I forget the guy's name was a CEO, but I heard him on a podcast. It's called Betterment, and Betterment only charges 40 basis points, 0.4 percent, okay, of your money. And you know how does that make a difference? Let's say you got you know you got a a million bucks put away, right? You got a million bucks. Is it ten? Um, and at the end of 0.7% is going to be um, 75, excuse me, if you get 10 million put away, 0.75% is 75,000, 0.4% is 40,000. That's a 35% uh, $35,000 difference. Why is Betterment so fascinating? Because they ask you a series of very sophisticated questions to understand your investment strategy and they use artificial intelligence. And uh, Betterment has grown extraordinarily in in the last uh, 10 to 12 years. And if I were younger, I would think about using something like that because now you're only paying 40 basis points versus 2 and 3%. Again, you may be have, you may have a, uh, a broker who's charging 1%, but then has it in index funds or mutual funds that are also charging management fees. So there's layered fees you have to look out for too. So, you know, my investment strategy, my personal, is to use something a little more sophisticated than that. Um, uh, I, I have all my my stock in managed accounts, as I mentioned, with a, uh, always watching the fees. Uh, real estate, I'm a, I'm a big fan. I probably, uh, 40 to 50% of what I own is in real estate. Um, there is no quick, get rich quick in real estate. I grew up in a real estate family, so I'm very comfortable with that. And it's done, it's been very, very, um, good to me. Um, the real estate, there's no amount or no limit to real estate you can have if the real estate carries itself. And keep that in mind. I mean, the building we have, it's carrying itself. Uh, I, I, I bought a marina this past year. The business is carrying the marina. The value continues to go up. Um, again, there's no limit you can, but it's not for everyone. You, you see, and and, um, and certainly continue to invest in your own business. If you're getting a 20% return after the fair market value of the doctor's been paid, or your your medispa. Um, where the heck are you going to get a 20% return? You're certainly not going to get in the stock market. And then, you know, if you want to take some, I've had some uh, other speculative things I've taken high risk on. Uh, some I've done really, really well, and, and some I haven't uh, done as well. Um, stay away from uh, friends with small businesses. I will tell you, they don't have the level of sophistication. Unless, of course, they've already sold their company for, you know, nine figures and they're starting another and, you know, they're very sophisticated. Um, stay away from restaurants and friends, small business. Here's the frustration I've had. I always make sure that people who invest in businesses that I run get their quarterly statements. They get communication from, from but it doesn't, it is not the case. And I can tell you, I've got, without getting into it, I've had to, investments I put in with friends and, and they're friends so I don't really care. I'm not going to ruin a friendship over but investing in their business was, was a terrible idea and I had one of my junior partners come to me a little while back. He's like, oh, a friend of mine, this restaurant chain. I'm like, run. There's there's no more miserable business being in a restaurant business. So what about insurance? You know, what about insurance? I, you know, in general terms for doctors, you, you know, it's an absolutely necessary under certain circumstances, right? To avoid hardships. 
I mean, you got to have health insurance. You got to. Um, I had, uh, you know, I had home insurance, homeowners insurance on our home. We had a fire, lost our beautiful home in 2013. Thank God I had insurance. Um, and you really need to get advice from an advisor, not just someone who's selling insurance. I'm, I'm not going to pick on these guys for a moment, but the reality is, you know, if you've got a physician who is, you know, if you've got two, if you've got two physicians, two young physicians, okay, and they don't have children, um, why do you need physician? Why, unless they have debt that gets tied back to them personally, you know, you don't need to have life insurance on both of them. I mean, if you have two physicians and one's a primary breadwinner, then you need to think about that. But I think that uh, you know, it's insurance isn't to like hit the lottery if someone dies. It's it's and anytime you're you're giving you're passing your risk over to someone else, you're going to pay a premium. Insurance companies don't do this to be altruistic; they do this to make a premium. Um, so, you know, and I always, when I meet with my insurance guys and they, they know I'm kind of a hard ass, but I basically say to them, please, please, please don't ever use the word insurance and investment in the same sentence because you're going to insult my intelligence and you're going to piss me off because insurance is there to protect you in hardship times. Um, you know, you have a catastrophic injury and, and to replace your income, until you get to a point where you don't need that any longer. But, uh, you know, and when you start looking, you know, we start looking, at, you know, at, at who to get your, your advice from. Go with paid professionals who don't benefit in any way from your decisions. I'm going to say that again. Go, from a, go with a paid a certified financial planner. I think they're great. I actually find that I know more than most of them, to be honest. Um, uh, I have attorneys. Uh, I have accountants. I have a business consultant I work with, but I don't want to know that they're getting paid based on a decision I made. You know, years ago, there were stockbrokers, right? And, you know, eventually the public caught on, including doctors, you know, get a call. Hey, I, I got a great stock for you to invest in. But every time you're buying something, they're making money off it. So you're you're paying a transaction fee on, on money you already own. And in many times, you're, if you really did the math on it, you're not better off. Um, so... You know, what happened was stockbrokers kind of got a, I don't want to say bad reputation, but, you know, um, so now, you know, when you look at the amount of wealth that older people have now, everybody's going after asset protection, wealth management, family planning, and in reality, and, and what we're really seeing now is a lot of people in the insurance industry are uh, going under the guise of wealth plan, planning. But the reality is they make a lot of they make their money. They make their big bucks on selling insurance. Um, so, you, you know, when a lot of them are going to get their you know, get their Series 7 license and um, but they're really making their money on, on insurance. And, and, and so, it, I mean, there's obviously a conflict of interest there. The more insurance you buy. And some of these are huge annuities, especially when you're talking about like second to survive insurance on, on estates and all that. And, and I'm not to say that there's never a role for that, but I think you got to keep that in mind. My philosophy is I keep my insurance and I keep my professionals separate. And I get a couple of different opinions. I use, like I said, I see, uh, you know, I got to use my accountant and my attorney that don't make money off those transactions. I also now that I have enough. I work with Wilmington Trust, which is part of M&T Bank, and I use KeyBank. I use two people, two that have a team of professionals, uh, attorneys, uh, wealth advisors, succession planning, and I get opinions from both. 
Um, and if I, if you know, I could probably get a little bit of pay a little bit less on a on a um, managed account if I put it all with one. But I like keeping them separate, paying a few basis points because I get different opinions. Um, but they're not making money per se on my transactions. And by the way, these managed accounts, if they're done correctly, you are not paying every time you make a trade. You pay your 75 basis points and they take the hit on the trades. So it encourages the right behavior on these people who are investing on your behalf because if they're doing trade after trade, it's actually coming out of their back pocket. So there's other some, some other things out there that I want to just touch on briefly. A uh, new big thing now is for the, the more senior uh, of you who's listening to this is the last to survive life insurance. You know, gosh, I could talk about this for, for a long time, but the reality is I, I said to my attorney, let me ask you something, but right now I guess it's uh, you got 11.8 million per person you can put away. And beyond that, it gets in New York State, you, you get clobbered. Once you get above the five million threshold, and, and once you get above the the twenty whatever twenty twenty three point something million put away, and you give to your kids, you know fifty five sixty percent goes out to tax. Um, so there's this whole thing now, you know, the whole last to survive insurance. But the reality is, if you're paying this premium for twenty years or twenty five years, you can't convince me I couldn't put more away myself. Um, and so we got to pay tax at the end of the deal. I don't really get, but then I had this epiphany a few weeks ago that I guess I understand now. Let's say you're part of the, you're one of the Duttons, you know, you got the big family ranch out there, Yellowstone for those Yellowstone fans. And if you have to sell the family asset, the big ranch or the big company just to pay your tax bill, okay, or a very, very sophisticated investment plan, maybe having the last to survive insurance makes sense to me, but... Gosh, there's an awful lot of insurance agents getting wealthy, really wealthy off the last to survive policies. And then finally, I'm going to leave you with one thing that I think is imperative to start thinking about as a young professional is every single year you should do your financial statement. Okay, I'm going to say that again. This is probably one of the most important things I'm going to say. Every single year, put together a financial statement. What's a financial statement? And you can get it from any, any bank, and I didn't start doing it until about... 12, 15 years ago, and it's pretty stinking cool because year to year, it shows you where you're going and are you getting somewhere. What it means is you have all the assets in one column that you have and you have to you have to be disciplined. I do it every year. I do it in November. You write down all your assets. And by the way, each year it gets easier because you already have the one from last year. So you can just, you know, add this account, add this piece of real estate. And then on the other side, you put all your liabilities, you know, all of your debt. You know, what do you own? Basically, we carry very little, no debt, so we just have some mortgages on that side. And then we take all the assets minus the liabilities, and that tells you what is your, quote, net worth. And when your net worth is now growing at two times your income, you're set. I mean, actually, quite frankly, if it's growing at the same rate that your income is, your current income, what you're posting at your tax return, you, you really don't need to... I mean, you really don't need to work anymore because what's happening is it's you've got the snowball going down the hill. But the reason I think it's so important is it's somewhat of a positive feedback loop that gives you peace of mind from year to year that even during recession years that you're going somewhere, that I worked all year, took care of my family, and I'm getting somewhere compared to... Um, compared to uh, not working. And it allows you to realize that you are 
acquiring wealth over time. Because at the end of it, at the end of it all, why bother working? You know, obviously you want to take care of your family and you want to enjoy life and those sorts of things, but it's important to know that you're getting somewhere. And then finally, I'm just going to touch on one brief subject is succession planning. Please don't wait. I can't. I, when should people, they should start thinking, especially if you're in your own private practice, somewhere between 40s and 50s, you better start thinking about it because I have so many colleagues come up to me at our meetings at 65 and they're like, hey, hey, I, I know you got this all figured out. Could you help me? Because I really haven't given this a lot of thought. I'm, oh, by the way, I'm 60 years old. I'm, oh, by the way, I don't have a plan B. I tried to help. I'll tell you one little story. I tried to help a colleague of mine by having one of my fellows work with them. But you know what? They wouldn't take the time to work on it and put a clear plan together. And my advice to my fellow at the time was don't take it. Do you know that person started health, having health problems a couple years later, had to close their practice, had nothing? Just because, and I don't want to use the word greedy, but just because they wanted to hang on and didn't have a clear plan. If you do it right, you can do very well on the exit. Um, you know, whether it's private equity or whether it's, you know, selling to your colleagues or, or whatever. And, and, you know, no one's entitled to overpay, but you're certainly not, you know, you certainly, certainly should just walk away. So I hope you found this podcast interesting. Um, it's a, it's one of my favorite topics because I spend a lot of time mentoring and, and talking to docs about, you know, next steps. So thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed it, share it with your friends. Um, and uh, send me questions, you know, send me, send me some questions to be in, uh, on things that podcasts you'd like me to cover in the future. Hope you have a nice one. Thanks again.